This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I'm your host, Alice. I'm Alexis. And I'm by myself. I am all <laughs> alone. I am states away. And, you know, I'm okay. I can do, you know, I like having the mic to myself. I think it's, it's you know, it's it gives you control. Um, I, I'm not envious of you two at all. It's true. I might throw an elbow halfway through this episode with his fat head out of the way. So, for those not in the know, I am on vacation visiting family. I have <laughs> left New York City to come to sunny northern Utah. The burbs. Come to the burbs. I have driven again for the first time in a year. Uh, good. I think I'm still good at it. What did you drive? Uh, the truck. That's fascinating. I, I took upon myself the mantle of the 25-year-old white man, and I got into a Ford F-150, and I went to the gas station to buy a soda pop and a candy bar. <laughs> I, How did it feel being the most intimidating creature in North America? I felt like a Tyrannosaurus. I was coming through, I was like, look at all this bulk. I was like, I could tear He even left up. you the little one. He, yeah, he did. Not the monster truck, the no. little truck. So I also forgot that my family basically runs a used car dealership here at their house. I pulled up and I was like, how are there seven cars here? I have none cars at my house. I have my Lamborghini. You don't even have a designated bedroom. <laughs> I have my Lamborghinis. I don't got four walls around my bed. Uh, Brutal. But it's given me a lot of time to read and ponder and become obnoxious. And watch dinosaur movies twice. Watch Prehistoric Planet a lot. That show whips. Yeah. Show whips. Therizontosaurus popped up for a little cameo today, and I audibly gasped. I have not felt that like everyone's like, oh my gosh, Reed Richards and Multiverse Madness blew my mind. Oh, I was spoiler. It's been out of my I was I was stone cold when that happened. I was like, I don't give a shit. What the what is Jim from the office doing here? Jim. But when that furry little fucker came out with his big old claws and was like <laughs> in the corner. They didn't even address him and I was like <gasps> I was like, I just really gasped over a giant chicken. Oh, okay, and that's prehistoric planet gain spoiled for me. Thank you, Dallas. Criminal. You're welcome. <laughs> so, but enough of that. What are we here today to talk about? Scott, Gene, and Logan's thruple is what we're here to talk about today. The only thing of interest that happened in this issue. Um, also, that Scott is in a different thruple with Gene and Emma as well. Yeah. And I basically, we're here to talk about X-Men number seven by Jonathan Hickman and Lionel Francis Yu, a, an issue that no one has strong opinions about. 
Never. No, it's we just picked a random issue. Seven's a good number. Listen, so we covered that one where Kitty she fights the xenomorph, and then we covered Action Comics one oh three one forty three. Is that what that is? Whatever happened to Truth, Justice, and the American Way? Seven seven five. You Marvel that's, dork. That's the same number. <laughs> Come on. But DC's pretend anyway. Just the difference of decades. It's fine. And now, for the third time, we're covering a single issue. And it's because it's one of Anne's favorites. Anne, do you want to introduce the issue for us? Yeah. So, X-Men number seven was a pretty big turning... It's This is an interesting run, Hickman's, because I feel like every single issue stands on its own and does something unique and introduces something new to the the Krakoa mythos and culture and society. And this was a huge one because this is the issue that introduces the crucible, which is this critical part of this new mutant society and trying to figure out how to overcome the obstacle that Wanda kind of left behind when she low key depowered millions of mutants across the planet. And um, yeah, it touches on, Hey, we're a culture that has now transcended death. How do we deal with this? And it touches on a lot of different themes from mortality to religion to just ethos in general. And it's, let's just, <laughs> it has very strong, it had a very strong impact on me. And it has a very strong impact on just about everyone I've talked to who's read it. Um, I am very, very interested to hear what both of you thought. Lexi, was this your first time reading X-Men 7? It was, it was indeed, everyone. Let me yank the mic over to my side of the table. Um, I will, I will say I did have, Dallas gave me a little rundown before I did start to read it. So that was definitely helpful because I, I don't know what I would have thought if I had no, any uh, heads up before I would have gone into this. It's a lot to process because I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, I know you guys said that there are a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions and I can see why they're different. Like, I feel like I can see both sides, but it's just a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) So Lex, we've read a couple different eras of X-Men now this month, right? We read new X-Men from Grant Morrison, Frank Quitely. We read Chris Claremont and John Burns X-Men, which is like the definitive X-Men. And then we read Zeb Wells, like having fun effing around on the side. But then like the third great era of X-Men is the one we're in right now, which was spearheaded by Jonathan Hickman. So how do you feel like this issue, and then you can even pull from like House of X, Powers of Mm Ten, which we read. How do you feel like it stacks up against the other eras we've read this month? I just have to say like, this was... Hickman's world that he has helped create with the X-Men right now is where I started with this podcast. Like we read some of this stuff at the very beginning of this show. And so I feel like I just have kind of an unbiased opinion of love for it and they can do no wrong. But then I read an issue like this and I kind of want to go crawl under my couch and never come out again. (laughs) So you did not love this issue? I don't know. I don't know what my opinion is yet. I want to be swayed. I want other opinions. I want other... Before I form my opinion, I would like to be educated. (laughs) We can definitely do some swaying one way or the other. Exactly. There we go. 
So, Anne, were you reading Hickman's X-Men as it was coming out, or did you... Yes, I was. Okay, so, so what was this Wednesday like? Paint this for me. Yeah. X-Men number seven just dropped. Where were you at on the Hickman hype train? <laughs> what did you think when you read this? Talk to um, me. <laughs> you sound like a talk show host. <laughs> wow, I'm actually really glad you asked this one, because the Wednesday I picked this issue up, I will never forget. It was a very, very special Wednesday for me, because... It was the Wednesday that I had just gone to the doctor and I had gotten HRT for the first time. This was the first day I started my like medical transition. I took my good old feminems that morning, went to work, and then I went and picked up this issue after and read it in a mall parking lot as I was waiting to go watch, I'm pretty sure, the stupid um, My Hero Academia movie, whatever the second one was, <laughs> because that was what was out in theaters at the time. And I sat in the parking lot of this mall reading this issue, and I remember not being able to put the book down. And I was sitting through that, that movie, and I couldn't think about the movie because all I was thinking about was this issue. And I couldn't figure out what the magnetic pull to this was because it was something very shocking, very graphic, very brutal, very, very different than anything the X-Men had ever been before. And I couldn't really put my finger on the pulse. Like, what's going on? This is for anyone listening who might not have read the issue. The The whole crux of the issue is there's a mutant who na- whose name is Arrow. She's one of the Guthries. Um, if you know Cannonball or Husk, um, one of them. And she got her powers taken away by the Scarlet Witch during um, M-Day, way back in like 20, I mean, 2006, I think, something like that. And so she's been a depowered mutant, basically living as a human for the last decade or so. And on Krakoa, since they, they decided, hey, we have a way to resurrect people however we want, we can bring people back with their powers the only issue is, if you're alive, we can't exactly bring you back while you're alive. So they have Arrow go through this tournament, this like um, fight called the Crucible, where she fights, will inevitably lose, and be reborn as the mutant Arrow, with her powers restored. And it's it took me a while to figure out what this issue really clicked with me for. And it was the... I'm there's so much I can say about this issue and I'm trying to figure out the most succinct way to put it. And I think it's because I realized the more and more time went on, the the longer the months went through my transition and the harder things got for me emotionally, the more and more I felt like I understand what's happening here. I I feel like arrow fighting in the crucible was like what every single day for me felt like. Just emotionally physically just it was it was a very hard time for me in 2020 and it was rough and i read this issue just about every single week to try to get through that because there was that strength that i found in arrow her going through this and the bravery she had that i took into my own journey and i you know related to really hard and it actually pushed me through that and I found myself reading the issue less and less because things have gotten easier. I feel like I'm almost on the other side of that, but I felt like that was my crucible. And I wrote about it in a blog. That was actually the first time I came out to people on Twitter as transgender is at the end of that blog. And yeah, it's sorry. There's just so many thoughts around this. I'm sure I didn't get anything out in any sort of condensed or perfect way, but the issue means a lot to me because of that. So 
do you feel like this is the time that the mutant metaphor has worked the best for you? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would say it's the time the mutant metaphor worked the best, but I think it's the time that one of these stories clicked the most with me on an like a almost like a like a DNA level. It's just it was I keep thinking back to something I told my therapist while I was going through it. I'm like, I wish this was easier. I wish it was just something I could flip a switch and fix instantly. And he told me that it's like, you shouldn't undervalue the weight of your struggles and the impact that that has on the people around you and yourself. Because yeah, it is hard, but you're going to come out on the other side stronger for this and you're going to be able to help other people go through the same thing you did. So I really, really like seeing the fact that Arrow did fight for this and she didn't choose to lie down and just accept a life that wasn't hers, accept a life that she knew could be better, that she stood up, took all the pain, took all the punishment for it because she knew on the other side, everything would be worth it. And she was reborn as a better person. And if I could summarize the entire issues meaning to me in like one sentence, that would be it. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that concept of not undervaluing the weight of transformation. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a lesson that I really learned a few years ago. Um, for anyone that is unaware, I, I'm i a, a relatively religious dude. And I a few years ago, I was a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. So... Next time a Mormon knocks on your door, give him a glass of water and think it's for Dallas Taylor because <laughs> those poor little guys are going through it. And while I was having that experience, it it was a time in my life where I really started to be introspective for the first time in any real way. Like going through high school, I did not often look inward and be like, what is how I'm doing? How is what I'm doing reflecting on me as a person and strengthening society? You know what I mean? Like I, not thoughts I was having. And I remember a very specific moment in time where I I wanted to make restitution for the kind of person that I've been and make a concentrated effort to be a different kind of person. And I remember feeling the weight of just that like spiritual change, you know? And I, so I feel like this issue is really great at capturing just any sort of change that you're going through in your life, you know, because like I listened to your story and I, it rings so true. And it's like, Oh yeah, duh. That is so what this is about. Like that is beautiful. What a great way that these comic books can capture the human experience. But like when I read it, I was just thinking about that. Like it wasn't a literal physical Mm -hmm. change in my life, but it was a notable spiritual change in my life that I still cite to this day as like a turning point in the kind of person that I am now. And I feel like that is just as valid a reading of this issue. And I think it's sort of why the X-Men mean so much to so many people because, because of the work that Chris Claremont put in, because of the work that Grant Morrison has put in, because of the work Jonathan Hickman has put in and all the other creators that have come in and laid their stamp on the X-Men. It's this beautiful tapestry of trying to capture the human experience. Mm -hmm. And when it works, it really, really works. And so I think this issue will always be a little special for me too, because that central message is something that resonated with me as well. I like that. Yeah. So Alexis, what were some of your hesitations about this issue? 
Um, well, I mean, I guess it, we kind of, in our texts back and forth the past few days, we've talked about, like, the whole ethical thoughts behind it, you know? Like, it definitely raises those types of things in question. Like, oh my gosh, we are basically, like, glamorizing gladiators right now. Like, we are reliving Rome in this moment, in this book. And that was a little chilling for me to, like, read. But then again, like, you can pull both of the sides of, like, well, it's every individual's choice. And I feel like that is a very um, telling theme for the past while, long while, recent while, cough, cough. Um, but that that choice was there and that that individual had that choice. And it just, I don't know. I feel like it kind of struck me a little bit harder reading it now than I feel like it ever would have, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it just was interesting to like, I guess kind of put yourself in everybody's shoes Mm -hmm. because of course we've got characters that are so uncomfortable with it. They're like, we don't want to watch somebody have to go through this experience. Like we've, we've, this is so hard to watch for us, but we also have, um, Melody's perspective too. like, she wants this so bad. Like this is her choice and she's going to do everything she can to get there so it's just interesting to put both of those perspectives together and realize like they're both valid feelings but they're your own feelings and that's the most important thing so I feel like that's something that's really important to remember is that every single person through media or everything that we've read everybody has a different opinion about everything and that's like part of being an individual which is kind of cool and kind of scary at the same time so I don't know like that's those are just kind of the thoughts in a simple way that I guess I can put them in that I had while reading this and I feel like that's probably what a lot of people felt <laughs> yeah, no it's that's that's pretty on point it's you, you can't deny that this is a hard issue to read because it's it's very brutal. It's very graphic. Um, they don't shy away from that. The The panel where Apocalypse gets that upper hand, head, upper hand finally and is just wailing on um, Melody and she's um, that one panel where she's stammering. She's like, she's like clutching her stomach, her chest and she just says I, I, I over and over again. It's a lot to a lot to take in and i def i'm not taking away from anyone who says that this is an issue that made them so uncomfortable that they were in tears because i got a couple comments like that that is something that i feel is so valid and so real because this is very hard to watch and it raises so many questions about a community like the x-men's now where it's like what is the meaning and where do you draw the line with violence and death in a culture where death is more curable than the common cold i think something that really struck me while i was reading this was the sinister and questionable edge that the first year of the x-men under jonathan hickman had 
that I didn't even realize had left until I came back to read this. Krakoa has fully become Tiki Bar Fun Island for our characters to live on, while Mr. Sinister is doing something naughty, but it's also kind of a yossified naughty. You know what I mean? Like, the reading this, I remember, it took me back to my feelings of like, are the X-Men in a death cult now? Like, is this bad? Because we're only seven issues into Apocalypse, who was one of their biggest villains ever, just being like an important character mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. And post X of Swords, post um, yeah, well, Ten of Swords, really, we feel so much love for Apocalypse. We're like, oh, wow, what a an amazing character in the Krakoa era. But Reading this again, I remember like, oh yeah, he was. this was just a bad guy that they invited on. And he was like, I'm going to murder you guys because we have to be the strongest versions of ourselves if we want to be the X-Men. And all the X-Men just signed up and were like, yes, sir, that sounds great. And I remember like the gut sinking feeling of that. Or you see Exodus, who was a crusader and who was a villain as well, like teaching the children about how they hate Wanda Maximoff and how great it is that they get to kill each other to get their powers back. Like it feels scary and it feels spooky. Mm -hmm. And it really makes you ask the question, like, is this my X-Men? And I I had forgotten that that was the tone of the first year of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men was really like making you question the ethics of what's going on on Krakoa. Because Jonathan Hickman across his work is asking questions about how we create the good society. And a really big part of that is, throughout history to create the good society, we have befriended less than good people. Mm -hmm. And (coughs) I think Krakoa is one of the most interesting and nuanced takes on that, on what are you willing to do and who are you willing to get into bed with to protect you and your people? And it's, it's a question that Chris Claremont starts by inviting Magneto into the fold as a good guy instead of a bad guy but that I feel like Jonathan Hickman cranks to 11 with these issues. And I, I think that's a fascinating premise for the X-Men. Oh, a thousand percent. And I'm so glad you used the wording that you did because you said cult. And that's a word that gets thrown around so much when talking about this issue specifically. Lexi, did you feel like this issue felt very cult-like to you? Is that how the X-Men were coming off? So, Anne, that I was waiting for that question. For those who don't know, I have a very icky, icky love for criminals <laughs> and all things true crime. And cults fall under that category. And especially the scenes, like the panels with those children, I was like, Oh yeah, they are brainwashing these children. Look at the, look at what's happening here. They won't even they will they will audibly screech at the sound of Wanda Maximoff's voice, and that's very cult conditiony behavior. And so I definitely got that vibe, and I was like, I have never felt like this about the X Men before. Because even before we hopped on, I was telling Dallas like, I love the X Men. I really enjoy all of the media that I've taken in from them. And so this was just kind of against the grain for me a little. Like I didn't like seeing them in this light, which was very interesting for me. So yeah, it was it was a little interesting yeah. to say the least. 
I think this issue does a good job at not, I want to say like othering the X-Men, but like distancing them from who they were before and distancing them from humanity more. This is the first time that I really looked at mutant society as a society and said that they are actually, they actually feel like their own group of people now. And we get to that ending point where Kurt's like, Kurt recognizes that and he's like, we're doing some crazy stuff here. We have a lot of moral questions about this. Someone has to answer them. I'm going to make a mutant religion to help get us some guidelines to get some answers. And I think that was more than the beginning of the issue, which had so many great questions asked and so many unique and sinister points offered to the scene in the crucible, which was a very emotional one, very personal one for me all the way to the end where I feel like it all came full circle, all added together into this delicious concoction of just so many questions and so few answers. And it was the moment where I'm, I think the second moment after house of X that I was like, okay, something truly special could happen here. And it's like, you know, everything in here that brought me so, maybe so interested in things like X-Factor, where they'd actually be exploring things like the Crucible and Resurrection and Way of X, where they'd be doing that same thing. Because I think those are the big moral questions that this era of the X-Men has that no other comic right now can be exploring. And that's so, so fascinating and unique. Um, again, as, as, as someone that got my degree in like ancient religions... I I love seeing the process of cult to religion occurring in real time in X-Men comics. Even in our own perception of the events of Krakoa, we went from in 2020 reading X-Men number seven and everybody being like, are the X-Men a part of a cult? To reading Way of X number four or whenever that Crucible issue was in 2021 and no one batting an eye because that's just how the X-Men are now. And so we're literally, we're seeing the process because, dear listener, the term cult is like very weighted in modern society. Like there is no religion that was not a cult at some point Mm -hmm. to somebody. Like whatever the prevailing thought was, these people that came together with a united belief that was against the grain were a cult at one point. And so while it's a very weighted word, it, I think that Jonathan Hickman understands that. And ending this issue with a comma uh, with Kurt Wagner saying, I need to make a religion around this is a very intelligent comment on that fact that this thing that seems so spooky to us, this thing that we don't understand and we want to push against is exactly the kind of thing that becomes a religion. Yeah. And for a lot of people that can turn you off religion entirely, but like for someone like me, I really like to dig into it. (laughs) I like to, to ask about the symbolism of what's going on. And I think Kirkwood was fascinating for that reason. Yeah. And I like that because that brings up those questions for you and you're a deeply religious person. And I think that's why it's so important that someone like Kurt was the person who suggested starting a mutant religion because his religion is so important to him. So it makes sense that he would be the person who's like, this needs answers. I know how to get answers. We're going to, we're going to work on this and see what happens. What do you think of a mutant religion, Alexis? I feel like, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if their religion was coconut bras and uh, grass skirts, I feel like that'd be great. I mean, that's where we're at right now. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine Wolverine in like a little hula outfit. 
Yeah. Very, very little man. I also, I do have to say, there was a part I giggled in this issue where Scott was making fun of Wolverine for being so hairy, and that's why he can't sleep, because he's too hot, and I felt very seen by that. <laughs> oh, are we going to get into that now? Bro, they are little boyfriends. Gonna, they are little boyfriends. Scotty in a Speedo? <laughs> I also, like... Sometimes I feel like I've been reading current Krakoa books and I've been like, everybody's talking about how like, this is fuck Island, right? Like everyone, it's, I was like, I was like, bro, no, it's not like no sexual tension has happened for like seven months. And then I read this issue and I was like, oh yeah, we were Marvin gaying it up for like 20 straight issues where it, I feel like they could have cranked it a little more on that as well. But like, it was steamy. (laughs) I also just couldn't help but laugh when he invited Wolverine on his family vacation. Yeah. <laughs> he invited the boyfriend. <laughs> you have to. Husband's boyfriend and a wife's boyfriend. It's a throuple. Alexis, in X-Men number one from this, you get a layout of the Scott Summers house up on the moon. And they give you like the room layout. And Jean has a central room with two hallways each to Scott's room and Logan's room. Yeah. So it's three little rooms connected by hallways with one big middle room with one big bed. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. <laughs> Where's Emma room? Under the closet? Under the stairs? I do. I feel like Emma she and Scott... Ethically, so. Yeah, she disappears. <laughs> Emma and Scott have been left out of this little thruple. Like, they, they get told that they're a thruple, like, in this issue, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, what does Jean think? What does Emma what does think? Emma think? And I want more of it. <laughs> I love Scamma. Honestly, give me a Summer's Family book. That's there you go. That any day of the week. Give us an illustrated guide on that. That'll sell. Yeah. Well, that did feel a little bit like what Hickman's X-Men was for a minute. Because like you said, and it was sort of a series of vignettes, right? Almost an anthology series. And, but it, it largely focused around Cyclops and that Summer's house. I don't know. I like it. A lot of interesting things happening. But when your house is on the moon, you can't possibly have a boring time. Nah. No, you cannot. So, So, oh, you go. I was going to say, I want to, if nothing else, there's the question of morality here that comes in a lot. It's during that crucible scene. And a lot of people saying it made them feel uncomfortable because it felt amoral. And I have to ask, did the scene in the crucible feel amoral to you like did it feel like something that shouldn't have happened in the first place here's my spicy take and nobody can be mean to me on twitter um i don't think so i think we saw multiple times where they asked her are you comfortable with this do you want to go with this what do you think of this and she's like nope this is what i want this is my plan. I want to come back and be the best version of myself. And I feel like that is enough. I feel like for me, that's enough. It's her. It was her decision. And I mean, I know that violence is always going to be um hard to swallow nobody ever wants to see violence especially because i i mean i view the x-men as like family like they see each other as brothers and sisters so i would never want to see intentional harm be inflicted on a brother or a sister but 
if it's an educated decision or I don't know like I just feel like it's hard to say we can't um we can't vocalize for other people so I don't know I don't know if that made any sense no it did it definitely did I think you should go next, Anne, because I'm still sorting my thoughts. <laughs> that's that's completely fair. A lot of thoughts to sort. My, it's one of those things where it's like you have to to weigh in your own head what is the weight of violence and why is it bad? Is violence bad because it's violence and it's just intrinsically bad for you know just because it is, or is it bad because of the effect it has? Is it bad because violence brings pain and pain lasts and pain stays with someone and changes lives and affects lives and in it can lead to death which you can't come back from that's the like kind of moral train i get to thinking about death in our society our culture where we haven't beaten that yet but then i think about a mutant society where it's like okay death's no biggie we'll bring you back lickety split no problem good as new like better than you actually it's like you just walked off the line again we'll fix any of your ills you however you want to come back you can have it because they have the wills where you specify like make sure you bring me back with my specific tramp stamp or whatever and um it raises the question if this violence doesn't last if the the even the bruises don't stick around then is it really the same does it carry that same weight it did before or is it no different than like cyber violence like you're playing call of duty or something where you kill a bunch of people but their avatars no one's actually getting hurt does that does that matter does that count as unforgivable violence and that's the the really tricky and interesting situation i think this gets into that i could spend hours and hours thinking about and probably never come up with a a solid answer for what's going on here I think a lot of the morality of this bumps against like the alien nature of the world the X-Men live in now. Because you're right, if this was existing in our modern world, right? Like if we found out there was a religion that was killing people because they would have perfected bodies in the resurrection as taught by Christianity, right? Like you will eventually be resurrected as a perfect body. That would feel very icky and scary to us because there is not an immediate gratification, mm-hmm. immediate response. But again, what I think Jonathan Hickman is doing here is showing us that the X-Men aren't living in our world anymore. They are not functioning under that morality because ultimately this has about the same moral weight as someone going to the gym. You know what I mean? Like go, you work your body as hard as it can. You leave exhausted and beat up, but man, you're going to look so much better. You're going to feel or look how you want to just a little bit further down the line, right? Mm-hmm. Like within the world of the X-Men, that's basically the function here is like, go to the apocalypse kills you, Jim, and come out <laughs> the other end how you want to be perceived. And like, I think the issue is supposed to make you realize the X-Men aren't functioning how you are. Like, this kind of thing isn't going to happen in the Avengers book. Right. This kind of thing isn't going to happen in the Fantastic Four book. Because they still, for all of their superheroisms, function in the same world that we do. With the same rules that we do. And like Kurt is saying, the 
really the only questions that stick in this new world of the X-Men for him are like greater questions of, are you the same when you come back? Like, where does your soul go? Where to like, what, what are we teaching ourselves about violence here? And that's something that gets more into in way of X, but I think the overall, like, is this violence moral is sort of a non-question to X-Men number seven, whereas like the larger impacts of this kind of community and society and this world of no consequence feels like more of the moral crux of this issue. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do let's go into some hypotheticals here. If there was a world where ultimately death had no consequence, do you feel like it would progress society to a better or worse place? Uh. <laughs> just just casually drop a very easy question on us. Honestly, fastball. Um, so just, I can't. I'm going to put in my two weeks after that question. <laughs> I can't. Um, I think you just broke. Yes. No. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Damn it. (laughs) Uh, It would definitely make the issue of overpopulation a bit scarier. Ooh. Yeah. But at the same time, gosh. Is there a survival of the fittest? Like, I don't. I don't understand how apocalypse is okay with this process. That's interesting. True. Well, maybe he just considers all mutants the fittest then, because he's like, all of us collectively have beaten death. So and it's does, like, does this just become death. a? Does this just become a process of becoming the fittest? Mm-hmm. Mm, I maybe. think so. Maybe you prove yourself. There's, yeah. There's a because whole. Like, oh, you go. Oh, sorry. I was going to say the the a whole aspect of the crucible involves around proving yourself to be a strong person because they don't want people who are just going to come back, yoink their powers and say, okay, peace, I can fly again, I'm out. They want people who are going to be able to fight for Krakoa and defend Krakoa because their survival is still, you know, at the top of their to-do list because they are they know that they're doomed, basically. I think it's an interesting concept, though, as well, to be pulled on there. I've got, I've got two general thoughts. But, yeah. like, the line from Apocalypse where he was like, we don't need weak mutants we need mutants that are willing to fight for us i think is a really interesting question to ask about what kind of the building of the good society like i personally believe that people have inherent value regardless of their contribution mm-hmm. to society mm-hmm. right so like i i disagree with apocalypse there i i do think that if there are mutants that don't want to be soldiers that don't want to have to earn their place in Krakoa, I think they have a right to be in Krakoa as well. Like, I don't believe in this meritocracy that Apocalypse puts forward. Um, Oh, sorry. You. you. Oh, um, yeah, that was interesting because I put out my article talking about my experience with it and I have um, a a dear friend of mine, um, Nicole, who was talking to me about it and she said, it's a metaphor that works in a lot of good ways, but it also has one major flaw and that's the idea of to get to where you need to be and if you're looking at it through like a queer angle per se then you have this aspect of apocalypse standing there gatekeeping it for you deciding who is worthy 
to be in there and who's not. And it depends on how much of Apocalypse's speech you take as just like antagonistic bravado, just trying to to spur um, her on to fight, and how much of that is actually coming from the heart. And he's like, I genuinely mean this. Because a lot of this, I took Apocalypse as like a performance where he's like, I need, I need her to fight me. I need her to get pissed off. So that way it's not like she does. So she doesn't give up and I just kill her because one way or another, I'm killing her. I just need her to fight for it. See, and I almost read it as like Apocalypse means it because Mm -hmm. Apocalypse whole thing has been the survival of the fittest his whole time. Right. Yeah. And I think he's only okay with Krakoa because he finally deems the mutants as actually trying to be their fittest. What do you think? Like, this is kind of funny, but um, I'm going to go on a little tangent here. But there's an episode of Rick and Morty where... <laughs> Big brain. Yeah, oh, it, just wait. Just wait. There actually is a world on that show where they've created this utopia city where you will be resurrected no matter what. And it's very interesting because, like, I didn't think of that the first time I read it through. But it's like, um, I mean, like, they're ob- it's obviously... Uh, joke like the whole show is a joke but um it's basically like Chuck E. Cheese but like little kids are chasing them chasing around their friends with guns and they're gonna like shoot your sister in the head and the she'll just pop right back up Mm -hmm. and I can't explain it but like I feel terrible saying it but like that didn't have any like moral standing in my mind when I watched it I was like oh yeah she's just gonna come back it's fine it's fine so like my question is is like i mean i understand that people are very deep in their thinking about comic books i'm sitting with the two deepest thinkers that there exist but (laughs) um i just don't i don't know i was going somewhere with that but i lost my train of thought because i started to laugh um (laughs) i just i don't know like that's the whole point of their um, community now, like their existence, their their life on Krakow. Like they do get to come back. Mm-hmm. So I feel like yes, it is an issue. I feel like yes, the violent the per, um, the show of violence is terrifying, and nobody should ever have to watch that. But I I agree with Dallas when I'm saying like in their community and in their lives, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like they're not going to hold themselves to the same mental way that like we do. Like they're not living in our modern world. So that, that, that was a very good point. That made me think about that. Genius. That's what we we pay him for. I think there's a lot to be said here about like empowerment and embracing things that have been used against you. And there has been nothing that's been used against the mutants more than either depower depowerization and death and the crucible makes a spectacle out of both of them and i think it's the mutants proclaiming to themselves this no longer has hold on us neither one of these things constrains us in the way it used to we are going to take this we are going to make a show out of it we're going to make a spectacle out of it we are going to absolutely own it and show all mutants that we're not afraid of this anymore this isn't something that bothers us anymore you can't keep us down by fridging us whenever you feel like it so it's i think it's interesting from that aspect too Mm -hmm. um 
I'm going to ask you two first, but mm-hmm. I, I think there's some interesting ties to like our nation's relationship to real world violence that I'd like to touch on. Is that something you're both comfortable talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I've been tiptoeing around it. Um, all right. So trigger warning for anybody. I'm going to talk about like real world violence that's been occurring and just some thoughts on that. If that's something you're, you're not here for, I get it. Uh, you can skip through this next part. It'll probably go like two minutes, but, or if it is kind of, you're done. Like I get it as well. Um, sometimes I think that the prevailing Christian thought in our nation who believe in the idea of a resurrection are very quick to sweep away deaths and violence perpetuated to not inconvenience them because they can say there's a better life after this. And like, well, I, I do believe there is a better life after this. I believe in a resurrection. I don't think that it gives us permission to like, to take this life away from somebody else, to make this life worse for somebody else, to, to treat violence like it doesn't have consequences. And I, it's, it's very frustrating to, to just see like the term, like, oh, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers surrounding these real world horrific events. And it's, it's hard for me to realize that like an issue of X-Men where there's a sword fight with two pretend characters almost feels more stirring than like the shocking news of another mass shooting every day, you know, like it's, it's horrifying. And I want more than anything for people to, to have to account for just the normalization of violence that's occurred in this nation that is taught to our children. We're taught like our greatest moments as a nation are the times that we were able to solve our problems with violence. And there's something like moral and strong about that. When I, I do not believe that there is anything moral or strong about perpetuating violence. I don't think, um, and I can only, I only speak for like my own background as, as a Christian, but like I, it makes me so frustrated to see other Christian people, almost use the promises of Jesus to undermine the like the bulk of his teachings, right? That somehow it's okay for this kind of violence to happen as long as it doesn't inconvenience our lives at all. And so I just, I think it's something worth spending time thinking about. I think it's something that is worth pondering and asking yourself, like, what does my relationship with violence look like? And while I, I don't think anyone that's listening to this is perpetuating the kind of horrific violence I've cited, I do think that there, like, there's violence in our day-to-day lives. There's emotional violence. There's There are little ways that you negatively affect the world around you simply because it's our societal norm to assert yourself as powerful by harming other people. And I just, I think we're better than that. And I think this issue feels chilling. And I think that we should start to feel a little more chilled about our own ways that we're perpetuating a survival of the fittest mentality. Right. So that, that's all. That, that was kind of my thoughts. Thank you for that. That was, yeah, mm-hmm. very, very important to think of, especially today, but uh, it's 
it's almost like comics are trying to teach us something sometimes. But hmm, who would have thought? But maybe that is the point. <sighs> Thank goodness this wasn't one of those stupid girl comics with the MCU. <laughs> Yeah, this, this, is one of those apol- this is one of those apolitical boy comics. <laughs> Good. I just <laughs> Thank goodness I keep their politics out of my comics. <laughs> the moment I see blood, oh thank God, no politics. Oh yes. <laughs> Yeesh. Um should we move into the question portion? Yeah, we've got some good thickums this week. Yeah, I think we can spend a good amount of time here. Goodness, we got a lot. We did. I never get to see the email. They don't let me do these things. All right. So, <laughs> Joshua Gomez writes in. Joshua Gomez, you're great, by the way. Mm-hmm. I always love your questions. He says, hola. I hope I am not too late to chime in on what I know will be a fascinating discussion. But if I am, so be it. You're not, Joshua. Oh, we're, recording on, we're recording on Tuesday, silly Billy. Yeah. <laughs> this issue is an amazing one that I think intentionally invites viewing from different perspectives. We see different ones on page with it, the various X-Men, so we are invited to bring our sp- perspectives too. So it's an issue where individual experience are explicitly made valid, and that's beautiful. There's a nice story about beauty born from ugliness of a sort too. The art and dialogue are really top-notch. So my perspective, well, I've seen people choose to get jumped into a gang. The gang can protect you as an oppressed minority from many dangers of that identity, but they can't and won't protect everyone in that group. That's too much, of course. So prove yourself, blood and pain, and then you can get that protection and power and opportunity as part of your identity. I've also seen people in those circumstances join the military in a way that's trading a previous identity you had no choice over for a new identity with opportunities you did not have before. But there's a price of pain and limb and blood there too, isn't there? Maybe more theoretically, better odds, but in the end, that's part of the price. I knew before I read this story that the last thing a recruit has to do to become a member of the U.S. Marine Corps is called the Crucible as well. And I couldn't not know it while I was reading this story. So I can understand the Crucible in this story. I love the craft in the story, but if I was Arrow, I would have done it too. But I think forcing people to pay that price to be who you are is ultimately wrong. A price that has hidden costs that shouldn't be born just to be. But that really is just one perspective. Thanks for the indulgence and for making me think more about that story. What an X-Men era, huh? Holy shit. That was pretty good, Joshua. Josh, you need your own podcast. That was the best. (laughs) I, I really, I feel like one of the biggest... I watched a lot of videos about capitalism this week, so I have been insufferable. <laughs> and okay. I think one of the biggest like, unspoken harms that capitalism does to us is perpetuating the idea of a meritocracy, that you have to earn the right to exist. Mm-hmm. When I think that like, your existence is a miracle, you have a right to be here, you have a right to live, you have a right to exist, and I... I want so badly for us to overcome a society where people have to continue to earn the right to be here. Because frankly, I think the strength of the human race is in our socialization and our ability to take care of those who are having a hard time taking care of themselves. And I think the crucible really puts into black and white, the, the sort of mystical version of what happens to a lot of people every day. And I want to see that violence removed from our lives. And I think Joshua put that into beautiful words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Amen. That's <laughs> perfect. Preach. Uh, do either of you two have any thoughts about that or should I read the next? Oh, I think that was very beautifully said. Yeah, I, I like the part where it's like, no one should have to go through what Arrow went through. And that's, I completely agree. And I also, I think like Anna and I at the top of the show both shared an experience of when like the hardship of a change made it more valuable to us. Mm-hmm. I don't think that has to be the norm though. No. Like... Just because that's something that was empowering to both of us doesn't mean that it's something that I want to see everyone else do. You know, like, just because I don't have student loans doesn't mean I need everyone else to work through their student loans. You know what I mean? Like, I I want people to have it easier than I have. And I want... It's just, yeah, it's just... Big questions out of X-Men 7. Yeah. All right. Uh, Joe... Right. Alexis, do you want to read this one? Sure. Goodness. Since we're sharing the same mic, he's going to make me do things. Um, It says, hi, Comics Collective. I've been loving X-Month, as there have been some great insights. I'm particularly excited for this episode, as it's the only story covered this month I've read, though I'm excited to read the rest eventually. I just wondered, have any of you read Way of X? And if so, what did you think about it? I thought it was really interesting in how it carried over and continued some of the ideas and themes Nightcrawler presents here. Also, what are some of your other favorite one-shots? Issues that were as thought-provoking to you or just generally your favorite for how much you enjoyed them? I love Batman Annual Number 4 from the Rebirth Run and Venom The End from a couple years ago. All the best, Joe. Do you- I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna pass it to Dallas first because I think Dallas is the only one who's finished Ways of X. I got through two or three issues before I had to take a break, and I haven't gone back to finish it yet. Way of X is cool as hell, y'all. <laughs> two thumbs up from Dallas Taylor. Um, I do. If you liked the moral complexity of this issue and the idea of Nightcrawler creating a religion, that happens in Way of X. And it's very good. It's five issues long. And it explores how Krakoa can be a place for everyone and Krakoa's relationship with violence. Like, that's the issue where this crucible really feels like it has consequences. Where Nightcrawler says, like, this laissez-faire approach to life and death does have a moral hurt for our society. And I think it was good. I really I thought it was fun. I know a lot of people were mad that there were a bunch of babies that Stacy X was babysitting. Honestly, I personally do not think about those babies ever. So And neither do their parents. Exactly. <laughs> See, this is the only evidence we got that mutants are actually, you know, doing the do on Krakoa. They're doing the do. We never get to theory. see it. We never get the drama, but we get the babies. Lots and lots of babies. Arguably the worst part. Arguably. Uh, arguably. Yeah. Opinion. Is, yeah. So I'll, true. Yeah. The least fun part of that. <laughs> the least fun part. All the parts of Whoopi. <laughs> it is the least fun part. <laughs> <laughs> so the other part of that question was it, what's our favorite one shot? I'm guessing just in any comic in general, not just X-Men. Yeah. Any comic. Huh. Uh, I do want to say Batman annual four. That whips. You are right, <laughs> Joe. That issue, uh, it whips pretty hard, actually. Which, which one's that? 
Batman Annual 4. It's the one drawn by Jorge Fornes from Tom King's run where Alfred is talking about all of the amazing things that Batman does. Like, Batman fights a dragon in it. and It's crazy. Batman has a cool boxing match in it. It whips. That issue whips. I read it all the time. One of my favorites. Uh, And what are some of your favorite one-shots? You know, all I'm thinking about right now, because it's all that's been on my brain for the last week, is just Sandman. I'm just thinking about Sandman. And there's so many great one-shots in there. I know you've talked about how your favorite issues of Sandman altogether are some of the one-shots, so far anyways. But there's a great one-shot where we find out the reality is basically whatever you believe it to be. And there used to be a re- version of reality that was all cat people. That was fun. Um, also, the issue where Sandman overhears this guy talking about, like, oh, death's no big deal. You just don't die, stupid. And then he's like, he talks to his sister, Death. He's like, you want to you wanna see how long until this guy starts begging for death? And the dude just goes on living forever and ever. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I don't feel like dying yet. No, thank you, but no thanks. And of course, my favorite one shot from the entire series from the entire series is just after the first arc where Dream's feeling all sad for himself because he's like, you know, I spent 70 years in a glass ball, um, just broke out, got all my shit back, and now I just don't have meaning in life. And his sister, the wonderful, wonderful death, takes a baguette and throws it at his stupid head and tells him to wake the fuck up and find a purpose. And it's just such a, a spectacular issue i'm just when, when we have that special sandman episode i'm just going to i'm going to have like three pages of notes because <laughs> it is the most beautiful comic i've ever read it's my it's my favorite comic i've ever read i'm sure it's great anyway moving on to good comics um oh my gosh what the hell is that what is sandman i've never even heard of it apparently everybody needs a sibling to hit them in the head with a baguette <laughs> Please, I would pay money. I've never even heard of Sandman. Anyway, back to real comics. Grant Morrison's Multiversity. No! He did it again! Is made up of a series of one-shots that end up being tied together. But the two that I think are the best are Pax Americana and Thunderworld. Those two are excellent single issues that I think anybody can like. I think a one-shot rules. Like, if you can do it in one, do it in one, baby. Beautiful. Marvelous. I don't know any other ones that I've read. <laughs> Most of that, um, the Batgirl by Kelly Puckett run, the Cassandra case, ah! a lot of those are one-shots. Those ones. I like those ones. I think from <laughs> New X-Men that we read this month, the Jean and Emma go into Professor Xavier's brain. Is a pretty amazing one shot. Oh, that's a good one too. Okay, okay. What categorizes a one shot? The whole story is done in one. Oh. Like there's no, no part three of six or whatever. Oh, oh, I see, I see. Okay. So I think actually, like Tom King Superman up in the sky has yeah. a lot of one shots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was gonna say that's what that Batman issue sounded like was like the Superman one. And I like written that by one. the same guy oh maybe, well maybe that's why <laughs> <laughs> it's you know it's technically a two shot but I love the double date issues of mm-hmm. Tom King's Batman I mean if we're expanding to double shots uh, I think whatever happened to the man of tomorrow by <laughs> Alan Moore 
and Bill Swanson. Is that his first name? I know his last name Swanson. But that is incredible. And we're definitely going to do it on the show at some point. I can tell you my favorite double shot. What? A nice chai latte with two shots of espresso. <sighs> and with that, we're moving on to the next question. <laughs> Just glad Order that question. Good. We hit more Gaiman and Morrison. <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I will say, I am on a Neil Gaiman kick. <gasps> yeah? A good kick to be on, and I don't think I ever want to leave that kick. When are we going to watch Stardust together? <gasps> Whenever you want to read the book. I, it's on hold right now on my overdrive. I'll get it soon. I'm it's going through good. Neverwhere right now. so That's a good one, too. I'm, I just listen, listened. Listened. I like it. To uh, the ocean at the end of the lane. <gasps> Finished that one. Mm-hmm. That one's quite magical. Ursula Monkton is the creature of my nightmares. <laughs> and I'm just starting Norse mythology this morning. So yes. it's very fun. The game yes. and agenda spreads. Yes, maybe maybe Anne and I need to do a Stardust episode like we did yes, the please. collective. Oh my gosh. I think there might actually be a Stardust graphic novel. If I'm remembering I would correctly, pass away. There is a start. <laughs> you know what else is a graphic novel? <laughs> Sunstone. Yes. Very, yes. very graphic indeed. <laughs> By the, did you finish? Fine print? I did finish fine print. What did you think? Hornier. Yeah, possibly. but less emotionally resonant. Resonant. Ooh. Interesting. I definitely felt more titillated by the end of that one. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> Hornier, but like the characters less. Yeah, Fine Prince in Comicsology. Huh. I read it. I will do with that information what I will. <laughs> Lexi, what were you going to ask? What were you going to say is in comic form? Twilight. <gasps> good point. That's a good, that's going to be our special. That is a special. And by the way, it is, it's a DC Vertigo adaptation. So. Counts. Oh, that shit's going to be good. Oh, 539 on Comixology. Sick. I like that. Karen Berger, how could you betray me? <laughs> how could you do this to me? All right. We've got the Glenn question of the week. Ta-da! There is going to be no Glenn music this week because I'm editing not from my own laptop. So. Got it in another state. But so I want us to do a rendition of our Glenn music. So you two who both listen to the podcast and have definitely ah. heard Glenn's theme, <laughs> I would like you to do Glenn's theme now. It's the Glenn question of the week. It's the Glenn question. Whee! <laughs> <laughs> I'm like- the best. <laughs> I'm from Ireland, Northern, the Northern Ireland. <laughs> You two nailed it. (laughs) Um, Sorry, Glenn. Love you. Uh, Glenn says, X-Men 7 resonated hard with Anne. The closest I can think of experiencing this was during Midnight Mass. No spoilers, but there's a speech about the afterlife that had me in tears because it hit very close to to home regarding a personal loss. What comic or novel or show or movie hit you like this, Dallas or Alexis? Please re- disregard if too personal. Is there a piece of art that really resonated with you, Alexis? Ooh. I feel like I need like 20 minutes to think about that. I've never been touched by art, personally. <laughs> um, I'm not a yuppie. 
But if I were a yuppie, I'd probably cite Lies. Dan Slott and Mike Allred's Silver Surfer. The final issue of that run had me crying like an ugly baby because I feel like it it culminated a love story that really captured for me what it actually feels like to fall in love. Um, that or the movie About Time. The movie About Time puts me in a casket every time I watch it because it captures so much, again, of what I feel like it feels like to be in love. Not only romantic love, but just in love with life and in love with the people in your life and this desire to hold on to fleeting moments. And I think the old, the culmination of that story and like the message it leaves you with is something that's very powerful and something that I actively think about every day. And so that is very up there as far as favorite art ever. Yeah. I thought of one, Glenn. Um, I'm really, really, de- I'm really reaching deep into the truly artistic here, but um, the beautiful movie Frozen 2. Um, that movie, I, I can't even fully put into words the actual wrecking ball that it pushed through my soul when I went and saw it because as I know, I feel like I say it a lot and I apologize, but I don't think that I have childhood trauma, but I'll ask my therapist, but as an older sister, it was very comforting to see a character be allowed to do what she thought was best for herself for the first time in her life because we see our lovely Elsa and Anna. Elsa has always done everything in her power to make Anna's life the best. And for once in her entire life, she did something for herself. And I also, I'm also someone who's very touched by music specifically. And those songs in that show, I cannot listen to without crying every single time every single time also because i have the fattest crush on adina menzel but that is also different (laughs) but yeah do yourself a favor listen to that that music it's good it's good you feel very seen very seen as an individual yeah gonna be gonna be real same a thousand percent same mm-hmm. show yourself is a song that means more yeah. to me than i can possibly yeah me too um, chills wow. chills and shivers up and down the spine thank you. you both of you had fantastic picks i'm just thinking about about time again and just when he goes back and he's like oh and he like the dad realizes that last time and i'm just it, it breaks me every single time oh um, Alexa's never seen it, is what she whispered to me. And I said she would okay. cry. Yeah, you will a thousand percent cry. You will cry several times in this movie. It's, um... It wrung me out like a dirty washcloth. <laughs> I love they had to put dirty in there. Could have just been wet. I'm a naughty guy. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, love that movie. That is the end of our questions. Wait, I get to... I, I got mine. I, right, I don't get go. to just copy off yours. <laughs> Okay, so I have two, and they're both really personal, so just bear with me. Everything's This weekend was a big one for me in just like an emotionally draining way. 
it was Sunday morning and I got a call from my mom saying that they were taking my grandma to the hospital. And um, she was having, she had passed out. She was having some convulsions. So they called an ambulance and took her into the hospital. I spent all of Sunday in um, the hospital with her. And by the time I got there, she was feeling okay. They think it was just like dehydration, something pretty simple. All her, all her tests came back positive, but that whole day was just so, so stressful. And it's just, you're sitting, you're sitting with her and you're just like, it's that moment you realize things can change at any second. And I decided I'm going to be stuck here for a while. I'm going to finish Sandman. And a lot of the themes in Sandman revolve around mortality and change and the prospect of like eternity and how it's okay for things to change. It's okay for things to end because, you know, without an ending, nothing would ever get started. And it helped me a lot gain through that day, just reading, reading that book. It was very, very helpful because it, it calmed me down. It's, it has an approach to like life that is so soothing to me. And also I have to give a shout out to Galaxy, the prettiest star, which came out last week or the week before. And it's just, it's the first time, like I talk about like how X-Men 7 had like a metaphorical meaning for me where it's like, metaphorically, I feel like I'm in the same position the Arrow is. You read Galaxy, the prettiest star, and there are moments in this book where it's like, I can't explain to you are things that I have either said, thought, or done myself verbatim basically i'm like i don't have to imagine it i don't have to make a stretch to have this fit my life this is just what the experience was like this is what i did what i felt it's truly truly remarkable if you haven't checked it out yet it's a it's a fast read it's wonderful the art is beautiful please check out galaxy the pretty star it's so much fun yes it is <laughs> i all right, so I want to talk about Galaxy Pretty Star as well. I I was going to buy and read this book no matter what, right? I was like, I, I'm going to read it. I want to show DC this is the kind of book that we want to read. I want to be a part of the conversations that my friends are going to be having. And I went in with, like, solid expectations. I've read a lot of the YA graphic novels from DC, and I always end up liking them. And I always, sometimes I feel like, I leave them like, oh, I know just who to give that to. Um, but Galaxy of the Prettiest Star is genuinely one of the best comics I've read this year. Like, I not only did I read it and go like, wow, that's so cool that these kind of people get to see themselves in a comic, you know? It was, wow, that was everything a superhero comic can be. And so if you haven't gone out and picked up Galaxy of the Prettiest Star, please do so. It's incredible. There you go. The Dallas Taylor stamp of approval. Awesome. I'm very, very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts, Lexi, whenever you get to it. I might no rush, though. The, is the paper one? Can I get the paper one? You can. You can get a hardcover copy of it. Hmm. Maybe let's go find it. It's like 13 bucks on Amazon. There you go. I found it. Not hard. <laughs> well, maybe I wanted to go to a store. Go talk to people. I'm like our sister. You have to share that story. I went to buy comics with my sister the other day. Who's 13? Who's 13. She got a bunch of manga. <laughs> and 
I've never seen someone struggle so hard to pay for something in their life because she just had the crippling weight of being 13 on her shoulders. And she was like, oh, can you just do it? Can you just hand her the money? And I was like, no, dog, you're buying your comics. She's like, please, please. Ah! I'm dissolving before my very eyes. And it was pretty funny. The purple ink was she, leaching out of her hair. She had to, yeah, with her little purple hair. She had to go through the crucible to get some manga, basically. From the I, Barnes and Noble lady. The most you, vicious you, as they come. Oh my gosh. Da- <laughs> Dallas probably Dallas trying to get her to read some like Grant Morrison or something. She wouldn't oh, do it, so he's like, fine, pay for your own damn comics. I don't want to talk to you anymore. When I say I offered up like seven comics, I was like, This is great, you'll love this. She's like, I'm here to get manga. <laughs> I was like, please. And then our own mother toasted her last night about it. Our mother did make fun of her for being a, a weeb. <laughs> <sighs> Tough life. All right. It is. Should we end this? We can Maybe. end this. All right. Oh, I forgot that I have words. You do have words. Ah, here are my words. All right. <laughs> if you like the show and want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective, or you can find each of us at our personal accounts at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lexi Lou underscore comics. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review and we will read it off on the show. And finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. I know what's next time. (laughs) (laughs) Just because you're in the same time zone as me doesn't mean you get to micromanage my speech. Uh, All right. For our next episode, we will be having the amazing opportunity to interview Kieran Gellin. Very excited. And also, we will also be running spinning by my lovely Tilly Walden next. Kiss, kiss, kiss. <laughs> and we also have another interview coming up where we will be interviewing um, sorry, Ted Brandt and Rose Stein again about their upcoming Pride specials, not just for DC, but also for Marvel. We get to talk to them about our new ace icon, Connor Hawk, but also Marvel's new transgender X-Men character. Um, new person whose name I completely forgot. New lady! <laughs> you cannot get on me about this. Escapade. Her name is Escapade. What a wonderful name. That was an escapade to get to that answer. (laughs) Honestly, it's been a long day. Also, uh, while we were wrapping up there, I just bought my New York City Comic Con ticket. So I was wondering what you were doing. You did that in uh, the middle of the show. While we were talking, I was like... He whipped out his debit card that has a picture of a cow on it. It do. Uh, So... If you are in the New York City area and you want to come to New York Comic Con on Saturday, I'm going to be there. This Saturday? No, October. Oh. In October. Oh. It's October 8th. Maybe is that I'll Saturday. make an appearance. Yeah. So, for any of you, you can come meet me. Ding. I would come, but I'm on bed rest. We're going to send you so many good shows to watch. True. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe you can finally read some good comics. Mm. Oh, six weeks. I'm finally going to read everything but Morrison. <laughs> Exclusively not. Exclusively <laughs> not. All right, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.